You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of James. Here's Nate. Self-control in the realm of our speech should be held in highest esteem by faith-filled believers. That's the theme of James chapter 3. He's talking to a group of people who professed to have wisdom, but he wants to speak to them concerning the power of their words and the need to bridle the tongue and to gain control of their speech. In one sense, James is going to build a case for maturity of speech being the mark of ultimate maturity within a person's life. He starts off this section or this chapter in verse one by saying, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. It appears that what's happening here is that James introduces a new subject and then quickly from that subject enters into a larger theme concerning the power and the untamability of the tongue. But the initial subject that launches him into that most helpful theme for us is found in verse one. Apparently there were many people in the church that James was writing to, again, scattered Jewish believers throughout the world who had wanted to become teachers. And we don't know why this was a problem amongst the people that James addressed. Perhaps their old synagogue practices where there was lots of latitude and who was allowed to speak and there was lots of time given to public sharing, perhaps their idolization in their past and previous life of rabbis holding them in incredibly high esteem, perhaps that had led these Jewish believers to abuse the teaching ministry inside of the church. And so James announced, he said, let not many of you become teachers and not many of you should be teachers because those who teach, we who teach, he said, he threw himself into that category, will be judged with greater strictness. Now, of course, in one sense, we should ask the question, why will teachers be judged with greater strictness? And I think one answer to that question is very simple. It seems that it is a scriptural thought that we are held accountable for what we know. Jesus announced to the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, towns in which he had done ministry, that it would be more tolerable for cities like Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom and Gomorrah. These were towns that in the Old Testament era were incredibly wicked places. They were not doing in Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum even a tenth of the external sins that were being committed in Tyre and Sidon and, and Sodom and Gomorrah. However, uh, in those towns, Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, they'd seen Jesus. 
Uh, They'd had a revelation of Christ. He had personally ministered in their midst. And so Jesus said, it will be harder for you in the day of judgment. And so if that's true, if the principle holds that we are held accountable for what we know, the amount of revelation that we've received, well, those who are teaching and studying and preparing and wrestling with the word of God, they have a high amount of discovery in their lives. And so there's an accountability for what you know, especially as a Bible teacher. You've got to be obedient yourself. You can't just speak it. You have to walk it. But I think also there is a strictness because teachers are in a position of leadership. And Jesus continually indicated that we are held accountable for how we lead others, even going so far as to say that it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause a little child to stumble. So some should teach. Uh, That's true. But James here announces not many should because of that judgment that is strict. But jumping from that theme, he goes into verse 2 and says, listen, we all stumble in many ways. That's just the truth. None of us are perfect, but those who are complete and mature are those who he announces, as I've read already, anyone who does not stumble in what he says, because if he has that going on, then James announces he is able also to bridle his whole body. In other words, perfect speech equals a perfect person. Self-control in speech enables us to have self-control over our whole body. And this is wonderful. We're to be, in one sense, a people who make speech control. Self-control in the realm of what we say We're to make that our goal. And we live, of course, in this hyper-communicative era. And oftentimes we use other marks to gauge our maturity. Church involvement or attendance or fruitfulness or giftedness or knowledge. But James says the spiritually mature are those who do not sin with their mouths. They use their mouths not to tear down and ruin and hurt, but they use their mouths to build up and encourage and console. It reminds me of Paul's urging into the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 concerning his desire, his wish, his dream scenario for the church is that everyone would receive the gift from the Holy Spirit of prophecy because he says the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. He would love to see the church walking around, building each other up up, encouraging each other, consoling each other with their words. That is the power of the tongue. And James goes on here now to illustrate his point. He says in verse three, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also, though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder Wherever the will of the pilot directs, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. James here seems to be pointing out with these three illustrations. He points out the horse 
that comes under the power of the bridle, a ship that navigates treacherous waters under the influence of a small rudder, and a fire that starts out very small but can destroy a huge or great forest, he seems to be pointing out the potential influence of the tongue. Notice all of these elements are powerful. A horse out of control is powerful. The sea out of control is powerful. And a fire out of control is powerful. And that is the way of our words. Either way, whether they are bridled, whether they are submitted, whether they are kept inside of the stove and the fireplace like a fire ought to be in order to benefit us, or whether they run rampant, unbridled, without a rudder, and out of control, either way, our words are powerful. Proverbs 12 verse 18 says, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Listen, every one of these elements, the horse, the sea, the fire, all of them are useful when brought under control. And the tongue can be used wonderfully to help people in this life. Guidance can be given, permission granted, wisdom received, a transformation of the mind delivered, teaching that shapes, encouragement received. Words are absolutely powerful. Fathers, I think, have a wonderful opportunity to do great good with their words. You know, the Bible doesn't say a ton directly to fathers, but it gives us so much in a secondhand kind of way. When you consider especially that the apostles considered their ministry to be a very fatherly kind of ministry. Paul actually told the Thessalonian church in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, that he ministered to them as a father. And when he described his ministry, it was all verbal. In other words, in Paul's mind, a good father uses his words. And what do the apostles give the early church? They give them words. They give them words. They speak the truth into their lives. And a father has the wonderful opportunity of using his words for great good in the life of his children. And I think God has sovereignly designed the family in such a way that even though there are billions of words out there designed to define and identify and create insecurity within our children, the reality is that a father's voice is more powerful. It's a megaphone in contr contrast to all of the voices in this world. Your words, O oh Father, are a secret weapon to your children. But he announces here, listen, think about them, the influence of our words, the power of our words. How great, he says in verse 5, a forest is set ablaze by the small little fire of a person's words. Proverbs 26 verse 20 says, For lack of wood, the fire goes out, and where there is no whisperer, quarreling ceases. You know, we live in this age of official apologies, but how many family feuds or broken relationships or slanderous things could have been stopped? How much damage could have been stopped had the words simply been guarded? 
Now in verse 6, James continues this theme and especially sticks with the picture of the fire. He says the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Literally, when he says setting on fire the entire course of life, he, he means, it's a phrase that means the wheel of birth. And so he says here, the tongue is really the birthplace of unrighteousness. It's a fire. It stains the whole body, he said. It's set on fire by hell. What is James announcing to us here? I think what he's announcing is that many, if not most of our troubles begin and are birthed and are started by and with the tongue. How many sins are entered into with a simple text message? How many sins are entered into with a simple note, a simple email, a simple exchange, a simple hello? So often adultery or drunkenness or abuse or rage, they begin with the tongue. You have to say yes. You have to begin to flirt. You have to begin to entertain things which you cannot do without your words. And so James is announcing your words can get you into great, great trouble. They set on fire the entire course of life. I heard of a man who in a bygone generation went to his pastor after falling under conviction of being a real slanderer and gossip in his town. And the pastor wisely said to him, well, the Lord can forgive you. The Lord will extend his grace to you and separate your sin from you as far as the east is from the west. But if your desire really is to make things right, and that's what the man was claiming, he said, I want you to take a handful of feathers and go to the home of every single person that you have ever said an ill word against. Put a feather on their doorstep and come back to me tomorrow. The man returned the next day after having distributed those feathers and the pastor said to him, now go back to each one of those homes and collect the feathers. And the man said, that's impossible. Surely by now the wind has blown these feathers in every direction. There's no way I could collect all of them. And the pastor announced to him, so it is with your words. You've said them, they have run their course, they have done their damage, but you cannot take them back. They run their course like a fire, James is announcing. For every kind, verse 7, of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature, can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Here, James just simply announces to us, listen, the tongue is absolutely untamable. You know, you could tame beasts and birds and reptiles and sea creatures. But if you see a lion tamer in the cage at a circus, if they still even have such a thing, you see a, a man or a woman taming that lion, but they cannot tame the tongue within their own mouths. It is unruly. It is untamable. And it is, he announces in verse eight, full of deadly poison. You know, 
certain kind of speech is absolutely poisonous. Some poison works very quickly, hurts very quickly, and some of it works its poison slowly but surely over time in a person's life. The only antidote to the poison of people's words is the word of God teaching us who we really are in Christ, that we're co-heirs with Jesus, that we're free from sin, that we're approved in Christ, that we're, we're made alive to God by the blood of Jesus Christ. The deadly poison of man's words can be corrected by the truth, the true medicine, the life-giving medicine of God's word. But James is painting it in a very dark tone. He's saying, listen, you can't tame the tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. It is full of deadly poison. In other words, I think James is at this point trying to get us to think very gravely about our tongues, to think very gravely about our speech. Now he's going to pick it up in a moment, but not before he says even worse things concerning the mouth. Verse 9, he says, with it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. In other words, he announces that there is this irony. He says, you use your mouth and you bless the Lord. You sing worship songs to God. You talk about scripture. You adore and worship him. But with the same mouth, you curse people. And these people, James says, are made in the likeness of God that you've worshipped. In other words, how can you curse these people who are made in the likeness of the God that you have just praised? No, it's that duplicity should not be present. It is not right. He says from the same mouth, verse 10, come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. And then he gives... An illustration that I think gives us an indication of how James thinks that we should go about curing our speech. Here it is in verse 11 and 12. He asks a few questions, four illustrations very quickly. Does a spring, he says, bring forth or pour forth this from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? You know, if you find a spring, it's going to bear one or the other. It's not one day salt water, the next day fresh water, alternating between the two different types of water. No, a spring is going to bear one or the other. It's fixed. Can a fig tree, verse 12, my brothers, bear olives? In other words, if you go up to a fig tree, you're going to expect figs. You wouldn't look for olives. It will bring forth the type of fruit that it is. Or... Verse 12, a grapevine produced figs. You wouldn't walk up to a grapevine and expect anything other than grapes. Neither can a salt pond. You go up to a pond on a hike. You see a sign that says this is a pond filled with salt, a salt pond. You would never expect, he says, that salt pond to yield fresh water. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. And I think what James is saying is, that the normal course of nature is that you, what you are is what you yield. And I think James is giving us a wonderful hint 
at where he's going with this whole truth. Yes, your mouth is untamable. Yes, the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. Yes, there's an inconsistency and a duplicity where you bless the Lord and curse people with the same mouth. And I think what James is doing is saying, in nature, you don't see that kind of duplicity because whatever it yields indicates what it is deep down inside at the bottom of that spring or in the root of that tree. And I think what Jesus is saying is, listen, deal with the heart, deal with the root, deal with the source. Don't just put a thing in your mind and say, I'm not going to say evil things anymore. I'm not going to think evil things anymore. That's an impossibility. You can't tame the tongue in that kind of way. The only way for it to be dealt with is to allow the gospel to run its course in the source of your life. Let the water within become healed. Let him change you from the inside out. And I, of course, know no other way than by opening up your heart to the gospel initially, but then secondly, by opening up your heart daily in relationship to the Lord. Now, one of the things that we can do to cleanse our source or our heart is to simply receive the wisdom of God. In other words, the key to speaking correctly is thinking correctly. It's one thing to say, don't talk like that. And another thing to say, don't think like that. That's why James begins to go after wisdom in verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And so James here now rhetorically asks his audience about their wisdom. Many of them had wanted to become teachers, so perhaps he's getting after them a little bit about that. And I think James is asking a, a question that basically means, hey, listen, you know, who is wise and understanding among you? Which one of you has moved from a mere desire for wisdom to an actual life of wisdom? James says, if you're out there, let him by his good conduct show his works in the meekness of wisdom. You know, the truth is, is that our wisdom must be proved in everyday life. It's, it's the way you live, not the way you talk that counts. And so he says, let him show his wisdom and show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Let him be a person who meekly meekness meaning you're allowing yourself to come under something to come under to be harnessed by the wisdom by the truth of god now he says in verse 14 but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts do not boast and be false to the truth in other words he says look if 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 in your life you're saying that you're wise. You're saying, look at my life. I've, I have so much wisdom within. He says, if what's present is bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, he's saying, then listen, in reality, you don't have true wisdom, but you have false wisdom. Just look at the outcome of your life. 
And it's fascinating. So often we don't think about the outcome of someone's life when they espouse a life philosophy and say, follow me. James does say, however, that there is wisdom in it. It's just false wisdom. That's why he says in verse 15, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. So this wisdom, this false wisdom, it comes from a terrible place. It doesn't come from above. It doesn't come from heaven. It doesn't come from the Father, but it comes from three things. First of all, it's earthly, he says. That means it's of the earth, it's on the earth, it's earth-bound, human, something that people produce. Earthly wisdom is always absent the eternity of God, the heaven of God. It only asks, how will my decisions affect today, now, rather than asking, how will this affect all of eternity? It's unspiritual as well, he announces. Unspiritual means that it's sensual, it's physical, it's animalistic and natural. It's very soulish. It's absent the spirit of God and being governed by the spirit of God. Feelings and emotions, the gut are the things that direct a person with unspiritual wisdom. They base their lives on their senses and their feelings. And this, of course, creates an incredible emptiness. Because all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. And so this person's life is, they think, has been created for themselves and by themselves. And so they live for their own personal fulfillment, not realizing that we've been designed to fulfill another. We've been designed to please the Lord. And lastly, this kind of wisdom is demonic, he says. It's not just earthly, not just unspiritual, but it trends towards a demonic kind of wisdom. And demonic wisdom is always absent of the presence of God. And demonic wisdom is always seeking to destroy whomever uh, the demon inhabits. And so this kind of wisdom, you know, it's, it may seem wise at the beginning, but it is always designed to destroy a human life. For where, verse 16, jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. These are more results of false wisdom. They never have enough. Their life is disorderly and chaotic. And every vile practice comes from their disobedience to the Lord. But the wisdom from above is... First, and notice this list, it sounds so much like Jesus, pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Listen, when we fellowship with the Lord, when we give our lives to the Lord and submit to him, when we go to him in prayer and go to him in his word, when we get alone with him and pour out our hearts before him, he produces his character within us. We have purity and peace, a gentleness that grows. We become open to reason and submissiveness. We become full of mercy and good fruits, impartial, sincere. Jesus was all of these things. That's true wisdom. 
And when that is flowing in a person's life, and that's what's coming out of their lives, not speech that devours and hurts, not an unruly, unrighteous fire coming from their lives. Instead, here's the result. Verse 18, And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. If you want to be a blessing, if you want your life to count, if you want your life to be an encouragement to others, a harvest of righteousness, you must sow in peace. You must give yourself to the wisdom of God, the wisdom of the Lord. We no longer operate by the wisdom of the world, carnal wisdom from around us and within us, but we operate by the wisdom that comes from God. He truly changes our source so that we can speak well. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.